Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey everyone, Yas here, and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have a fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask, and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends, and don't forget to get in touch, guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at the Coaches Net. Once again, that's at the Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name is Coach Yasin. I've got a very special guest with me today. It's the man himself, Mr. Constraints, um, Keith David. How are you, Keith? Good. Great. Great. Thanks, Yas. Good, uh, good to be on the show. Brilliant. I'm, I'm really pleased to have you and I'm, I'm, re- I'm really excited for the conversation we're about to have. Keith, just before we start, though, obviously for me, many of the coaches that are listening to this may or may not have heard of you, maybe just give a brief insight around who you are, what you do, um, and we can kind of spin off from there. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, well, uh, I've been in, uh, I'm an academic. Um, I've worked at universities uh, uh, in different parts of the world. Um, you know, I've enjoyed that. Um I'm interested in motor learning, um, skill acquisition, talent development, how people acquire expertise um, and things like that. Obviously, that's all related to coaching and teaching. 
Um, I've, uh, I, I originally trained as a PE teacher in London. I was um, trained at St. Mary's University um, because at that time, back in, uh, in the early 1970s, if you were interested in sport as a, a career in terms of coaching, teaching, you had to go into physical education. Now there are many different routes like sports science and sports medicine and uh, physical education as well. Um, sports engineering, all that sort of stuff. And I work with those groups. Um, but originally I had to train as a PE teacher. And one of the first things I realized um, in the first year, actually, um, that it was that I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to teach PE, but I loved the subject material. I loved the material about how people move, um, you know, what they should do in training and um, what that implies for coaching, teaching, performance preparation. And that was my passion that I got into. And the other thing I didn't realize at that time, age 19 or so, uh, was that, that those theoretical ideas would change, would change so dram uh, dramatically. You just, I just expected that uh, that's what I was, uh, would be interested in. And I, and I thought, well, uh, I enjoy the subject matter. So I want to get into a teacher training college or a university department as soon as I possibly could. And so um, uh, that's what I, I eventually geared my um, career up to. Brilliant. Matt, thank you very much for sharing that. Cause you know, there's, there's two really powerful things that have come up, come out from me in that. In the first piece is that you might have an interest in a particular area or a subject, but teaching it might not necessarily be the thing that you're passionate about, if you like. Um, and I think that's really, really, really important to kind of highlight because there's a lot of coaches out there who are very knowledgeable and they've got, they've got a lot of information, but actually maybe coaching themselves isn't necessarily the route they, that they maybe are best suited to. It might actually be coach development or coach education, if you like. So I think that's a really, really interesting piece to kind of just touch on there. And the second piece is obviously that listening to what you said there and what I'm hearing is that you've almost, it's, it's been a topic of conversation with a few coaches I've had recently that you kind of let the niche pick you a little bit because that's it's what piqued your interest from the get-go rather than you saying right actually i'm going to go after this because that looks like the latest kind of fad if you like mm -hmm. so i think there's two really key bits in there. and i guess you know you, you also mentioned that there's been a lot of changes in terms of what coaching looks like what teaching might look like and and how that has dramatically changed not just in since you know since you started your your journey back in the 70s but actually even as recently the last 10 years it's really really mm -hmm. massively um with you know, constraints and, you know, skill acquisition being a really, really big piece of what coaching is like today, especially within the world of sport. So I guess, yeah. you know, looking at all those different things, maybe just give us a bit of an insight around what the key kind of maybe trends or common things were back when you first started and how that kind of journey has evolved and maybe we can unpack some of that along the way. Yeah, yeah, good, uh, good, good comments and uh, leading to a good um, suggestion there for the conversation to continue. I guess, um, when um, one of the first things I discovered, um, you see, I, I, I got into it, I got into this area of work um, um, because I wanted to do something I was interested in, I was passionate about, and I love playing sports, uh, different sports. And actually I discovered when I went to um, train as a PE teacher that I actually not played enough sports. Um, I thought I was a bit of an all-rounder because I played a bit of tennis, uh, and I played a bit of cricket, uh, but football was my main, main passion. 
Um, but actually, when I went to um, university and I started studying it, I realised um, a regret of mine, if you like, was that I hadn't done um, enough sports. So I hadn't had um, um, a, um, a background that was enriched enough. And now I would, um, I've learned later on, and it's all through looking through the rearview rear mirror, is that um, uh, I would uh, advocate to the very young Keith Davids, um, try lots of different sports and be active and become uh, uh, an athlete first in the sense of playing and practicing and dabbling and experiencing because actually that enriches you as um, an athlete and then you know you made a very good point about you know a career could pick you in terms of yeah you might um, think i'd like i want to be a PE teacher for example but then actually you realize um through um the hard way being in front of a class doing things wrong not being particularly um interested in it day to day maybe doing you know happy to do one-off teaching and coaching but day in day out you you know you have to admire PE teachers and coaches etc who are methodical and engaged all the time you know that's a much different prospect uh, and so you know in a sense um the, uh, the the passion for the subject material, the area, all the background knowledge and information to help others emerged afterwards, um, as you pointed out. And so that's something that, um, you know, I, I think, you know, is absolutely spot on. And it's about people, um, you know, if you want to carry on working throughout your career, you can you can focus on an area that you're really interested in and that you're passionate about. And it may not be coaching, it may not be teaching, but it might be performance preparation, it might be data analytics, it might be um, training, strength and conditioning, it might be working with an athlete um, uh, from a psychological performance viewpoint. You know, the good news, Yaz, is that over the years, what's actually happened <clears throat> is that um, people in the UK have cottoned on to the fact that there are many diverse options to work with athletes and sports teams and people exercising uh, and it could be young children it could be developing um, athletes you know as they're starting to become um, more focused and specialized it could be on adults elite performers sub elite performers it could be recreational to do with exercise physical activity it could be do to do with aging people keeping them active and moving and playing sports still you know there are so many different opportunities so it's uh, um you know if you're, if you're interested in working in that area there's so much um that you know you can get into there's a lot in there again and i think you know one of the key things that's really kind of jumped out at me and really is part of the reason why i put the podcast together in the first place is that mm. you know and i've been coached for about 12 years nowhere near as much as you know yourself but been in, in it for about 12 years spent the last maybe three or four five up to five years maybe working coach development coach um, education and mm. one of the real things that i've picked up obviously is that a lot of people get into coaching in particular because of their passion for the game mm. in my case it's football but mm. generally i would i would say that's probably quite transferable across regardless of which sports um they may get involved in mm. but they often do that because maybe they're not aware as you've touched on there of the different options that might exist in terms of how they can participate in that industry if you like so mm. one of the key things i have really tried to push on this podcast is getting people from different fields and different backgrounds but working in the same industry just to kind of share that information and understanding that actually there's so many options available so mm. i'm really pleased that you've highlighted that because 
there is it is important to understand that all of these different parts come together to actually create maybe what could consider to be a big larger program for the young athletes or even senior athletes if you like so i guess that's the first piece to kind of really touch on the second thing that kind of really jumped out at me was that you talked about enriching yourself with a range of different experiences in sports and now that obviously might go against what a lot of people would kind of prescribe especially when they talk about early specialization and things like that in terms of sports um so i guess two things really that i've got questions for you on is what are your thoughts on early specialization and in terms of that enrichment of sports maybe if not just from your own experiences but maybe if you were to advise someone else that might have kids or coaches of different ages what are some of the sports that you would I don't want to say hit the sweet spot with, but what are some of the range of sports that you might want to encourage people to take, get involved in? Because obviously a lot of the sports that people do tend to get involved in at a younger age tend to be invasion type games. Mm. Mm. Would you say that there needs to be a good blend of invasion, a good, a good blend of uh, whatever else it might be, or are you more look specifically looking at actually it's not so much what the sport or type of sport it is or type of game it is, but more specifically the types of movements that the game maybe requires to effectively perform if that makes sense yeah yeah i, I can see where you're going with that uh, question um uh, and that comment i guess that um you know i think at the at the end of the day um you made a very profound point right at the beginning and i think that goes across life is that and, and actually you could interpret what you said there about um you know the um the activity picking you selecting you as it were um it's an affordance and an affordance in an ecological dynamics um, uh, concept, conceptualization. An affordance is something that invites you to act or behave, to take part, for example. And I, I guess I'm pretty much um, of the view that um, early specialization is not a good thing. And there's a lot of data and evidence to um, suggest that. Um, so when you read headlines, uh, when you read practical examples of a professional football club um, identifying and selecting um, a, a child at nursery school as a footballer, for example, um, that's a big call. That's a big call at that very young age. And, you, you know, uh, we don't really, it's beginning to emerge the picture of what that call might imply from a physical perspective on the person, psychological, emotional, even social perspective, um, it's a big call. They don't do this in other walks of life. They don't, people don't pick out um, um, a, a four-year-old and say, you know, here's a top musician, here's an engineer, this person's going to be a doctor. You know, it's just nonsense to suggest that you can do that. And the reason why is because um, people, um, their development in life uh, over the long term it goes in a certain trajectory but that trajectory is non-linear meaning there are ups there are downs there are periods of acceleration um, and there are periods of you know stability where nothing's happening etc um, because you the the environment has a major say in what's going on where you where you live where you um, interact um, you know, all sorts of decisions that, that, that uh, events that happen in life can shape 
your backdrop, your context. Context is everything. Context is everything. We don't live in a vacuum. So if you've you identified, you see the, 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 the task of saying, oh, well, we've, you know, this, this kid's a really good football at the age of four. That's, that's all you can say. At the age of four, this child is better than that child and that child and, you know, that sort of thing. That's fine. Doesn't tell us what that child's going to be like at six, seven, eight, nine, 21, you know, that sort of thing, you know, later on in life, because there are also, you know, there's things that in the child's life that act as context that actually um, shape the development of that person. So it's a very risky thing to sort of um, uh, to take part in that approach. And, and actually it's now emerging that not only is it a risky thing that doesn't have any basis in science, there are, there are downsides as well, because, you know, you think about it as a four-year-old, um, in a sense, four-year-olds like to do what four-year-olds do, which is play and and interact and get into fantasy worlds or whatever and all this sort of stuff, you know. And they have periods where they um, are doing daft things, uh, which you think, oh, you know, they're going through a phase type of thing, and then other periods where they don't, you know. And so to kind of label that person to say, well, yeah, our systems are so good, we've identified and then selected that individual and they're going to be a top footballer you're giving them that identity and that's a that's a big call you know because um you know identity is really important to humans throughout the lifespan um and it's you know there are important decisions to make so uh, you know early on i realized that i didn't want the identity of a teacher i was happy to be involved in education um at a certain level uh, and it was for sort of selfish reasons as i said because i really was passionate about the subject matter and that was where my contribution kind of emerged but there are some fantastic people who really think i love teaching you know and they've got this strong identity etc and there's different things driving them motivating them and so to make a call at the age of four um early on you know is is to label someone with an identity like that is a is a big thing so i'll, st I'll stop at that point uh, because it is quite a complex um, point you you made there yes yeah and i think, I think as, as, you, as you quite rightly said, it is very complex and there's so many different factors to kind of consider in that process. You know, like you said about the environmental factors, whether that be family, whether that be schools, whether that be whoever, mm. social circles that you might be um, around generally. And then obviously what comes with that is, and it's, it's an ongoing conversation I have with parents all the time, that, you know, it doesn't really matter if your kid's in an academy or a pre-academy or any type of elite setting, if you like, mm. at four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, because there's so many things that can happen between them being at that age and then getting a professional contract if it either does happen. Mm. I think what you should be more focused on is actually are they developing it? But that in itself um, opens up another can of worms because actually, again, through my experiences and, and, and I, I understand the, the, the thinking, but obviously through experience I've, I've kind of started to look, think, look at things differently in that, like you said, it's non-linear. It's life. Things go up, things go down. Things look mm. positive one minute; they don't look so positive next minute, and it might just be down to individual perceptions and external perceptions. So I guess just want to take you back a few moments. You talked there about affordances a few moments mm. ago. Maybe just give a bit more insight around where affordances come into this, because obviously there's a lot of coaches out there that might be listening to this and not that are still going down the typical route of not really helping that young athletes, young young people actually identify what these affordances are or actually appropriately putting affordances in place. Mm -hmm. where, where I come from with that is that 
you know, this idea of constraints and having a constraints that approach as an example. Um, I think there's a lot of people that maybe aren't quite clear on actually just because there's a constraint doesn't necessarily mean it's a constraints led approach. And yes. are we putting constraints in place, which mm. are in turn affordances, as you put them, because these are affordances because we're trying to encourage maybe certain actions or behaviors as a result mm. of the environment that we've set up for them. But actually, before we can even get to the point of putting those sorts of affordances in place for them, mm. we actually need to analyze and assess what are the types of movements, behaviors, and characteristics that actually might be needed to get some sort of success in here. And then that mm. kind of for a lot of coaches who maybe haven't spent enough time studying the game or understanding the behaviors that are required within a particular sport or activity, can might, I think it can, it can breed an element of fear and doubt in that actually, do I know what's required in this motion or should I just be coaching players? Right, we're gonna pass the ball like this, we're gonna shoot the ball like this, we're gonna run like this. And actually what's more important, how it's being done or whether it gets done, if that makes yeah. sense. Yes, it does, yeah, it's a, it, and it's a very profound point. Um, um, so if we go back to it, the, the reason why I, um, well, let's t again, take you back to, um, uh, my, my background, you know, and, uh, as a student and how things change when I was a student, um, I got interested in, um, skill acquisition in my fourth year at university it was, um, around about 1976. And that's because in 1975, 76, some really good books came out on uh, motor skills. Um, For one second, Keith, just just yeah. help some of the listeners that might not be fully aware of what exactly skill acquisition is, maybe just give a brief definition yeah. of what that is, because I think yeah. a lot of words thrown out now, especially yeah. in modern day coaching or whatever, and I think it can confuse a lot of people sometimes. Sure, yeah. So uh, the term skill, you can use that to identify a skill, like an action, so, for example, a skill in football, we could be talking football, um, could be shooting at goal, could be heading the ball, could be trapping the ball, dribbling with the ball. All those can be defined as skills. Uh, but skill performance is about performing those skills, obviously. Um, and um, so skill performance um, is different from, say, a technique where, you know, I mean, if I one of the things I discovered early on was... Um, I was great in practice. I could perform a technique, look very elegant, you know, that sort of thing and perform a skill, but that that's not skilled behavior. So acquiring skill is being able to perform those techniques, those actions under competitive pressure in football, for example. So, um, you know, and I'll take it away from football because I think it's good to sometimes go and explore how other sports see it. But, you know, if you're in a, just, just before you do that, I just want to kind of delve yeah. into that last bit. Now, you talked there about being able to perform the skill under competitive pressure. Mm. Now, again, it's something that I'm quite conscious about when I'm putting on any practice for the players that I work with, the athletes that I work with, that I don't personally like the idea of unopposed practice. Mm. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't have a place and it doesn't have mm. something. <clears throat> However, I... I guess, you know, early on, maybe my thoughts were different, but now where I am with experience and having observed so many different things that I can't quite understand why you would go with unopposed over opposed if that's an option, i.e. Yeah, yeah. you've got the players, you've got the numbers, you've got the space and the environment to be able to do it. Why would you? And if you are going to go unopposed, then you need to give it context. So coming yeah. back to your point about competitive pressure, mm. a lot of that is coming down to actually being able to 
understand the context of how far pressure, how far the players are, where the distance yes. is. And just on that then, so the, I like to look at it almost when I'm doing my practices, it's almost like a thermostat of pressure. So I can either dial it all the way down and there's That's just it. shadow place. There is just literally visual context yeah. rather than actual pressure in terms of you're shutting me down as an example. Um, or you can go all the way up and it's just right, free, free flowing if you like. But mm. on that, maybe just give a, be, a brief kind of, maybe expand a little bit on what exactly competitive pressure is. And yeah. if, if there is even a, a, you know, a, a general consensus or an agreed definition of what that could look like, because obviously yeah. that's conception as well. Yeah, very good. And of course, um, that competitive pressure is different in different sports. Um, and so you, you, you again brought, brought us back to the notion that I raised earlier, uh, that I think would be a good idea for coaches to keep in mind is context is everything. Okay, context is everything. And that's based on what the individual needs. So to go back to your point about um, pressure and dialing it up, dialing it down, what that takes us to is a continuum. At one end, it could be very little pressure. Um, and at the other end, it could be literally the type of pressure that we saw uh, in a Champions League game last night. Um, um, Manchester City and Atletico Madrid, you know, incredible social, psychological, uh, physical pressure uh, from different dimensions, you know, um, at, at the other end. And um, you're absolutely right. Is that it's? Um, I think it's better. It's better not to see it as either or. It's either opposed or unopposed, or competitive pressure or no competitive pressure. But you, you know, dialing along that continuum, and it's all based on the needs of the individual. So you place the athlete at the centre of the practice, and you know what is it that they need. That individualises practice, and and that's why I like constraints because constraints really is another way of saying context. Context provides constraints. And um, the reason why I was telling you, um, I was telling you about these, um, my, interest in, my interest in skill acquisition or movement skills and how we acquire, how we become skillful in our movements. Um, when I got interested in that, there was a certain metaphor for it. And this is what you need in science. So when you're studying um, performance, you know, some aspect of human behavior, for example, um, you're studying performance. Um, and it could be in sport, it could be at work, it could be in the military, it could be just everyday life. Um, you need um, a metaphor, a theoretical framework to guide it. And at the time, the dominant popular metaphor was the computer. The brain was seen as a computer. And, you know, if you've got a, you, nowadays, it's hard for you to understand that. But back in the 70s, I remember when computers just came into uh, my university and uh, there was a gymnasium that we used to use that we lost that because the computers were so big they needed to be housed in in that area that size area and literally their power was nothing like a laptop at the moment you've got much more power in some laptops than that you know then um, so it's all it's all about the context there but but you know if you think about it um, the idea is, is that the, um, the human being is, a, is, is, has got this brain that's like a computer and in that computer you store information. That information is transformed. There are programs that are designed, programs to do this, play football, to climb a mountain, to kayak, for example, all stored in there. And as you become skillful, those programs become 
more sophisticated, more elaborate, and you can do more complex things with them, the routines in the program. And then you get an output. So you get an input, some sort of transformation in the brain and the output. Even at that time, I started to feel a bit uneasy about that because it didn't feel like it was a very sort of intuitive level. I didn't feel like I was getting an input. Something was going on here, some sort of decision making, some sort of deliberation up here and then an output. I felt at times that I, I was um, when I was playing my best football, I was intuitive. You know, you look back and you think, how did I do that? I don't even remember doing that. I think it's a great point and the reason I'm smiling because you just brought up a, this idea that I've, I've been working with over the last couple of years and like I said I've not done any research in this and I'm not it's, there's no science I don't mm. know if there is any research to kind of support this sort of thing but one of the th questions I started asking within the last few years to, my, to some of the players I'm working with is actually not so much just around what does the context look like what are you observing? What are you, you know, what are you, what are you scanning for in terms of distances, angles, pressure? You know, all of that's mm. the typical stuff that you might expect. But more, at what point do you feel a physiological and maybe emotional change? So, as an example, right, Keith is two yards ahead of me. I know that I feel. Let's just say, if we're looking at it on a scale, six out of ten in terms of how comfortable I am in the situation right now. But the moment Keith comes an extra, maybe. 30 centimeters actually that just blows me out of the water and um, i've lost it uh, now that's a very probably very basic example of what i'm trying to i guess articulate but i really started thinking okay actually there might be something to this because if the players got better at understanding the context and how it's making them uh react physically and emotionally then it doesn't really matter about the technique necessarily because actually the context will tell them what to do next based on how they're feeling, if you like. And now, yes, yeah. I've had that conversation with a lot of people. They think now you just—it's just a bit of gibberish. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you don't. Yeah, I can't explain it. I don't know if there's any research around it, but I can see for myself through observation. Actually, this is having an impact. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Is there any research out there kind of linked to that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's interesting because. I find um, a lot of practitioners like yourself will sort of say, start of saying, you know, I haven't got much of a scientific background in this, but from my experience, this happens and that happens. There are the scientific theories that explain it. So you've got a scientific parallel to the practical experience. And, and I've, I've been on record as saying this, that there's, there's some good levels of it, what I call experiential knowledge, the knowledge you gain from teaching, coaching, working with athletes day in, day out. If you are, uh, you know, sensible, clever, you absorb, you, you know, you, you really take the approach of learning, you learn from things um, and develop and are interested in becoming better as a coach, etc. There's a lot of good experience you can gain from that. And, and those, those uh, experiences have parallels with scientific knowledge. What you've been talking about there is in the literature, it's called implicit learning. Implicit learning is where it's very kind of intuitive, as I was saying before, um, about it's, you know, the reason why I had doubts about this sort of compute, computer analogy, which uh, the, the long story short, the ecological approach rejects the computer analogy. The brain is not a computer. You're a biological organism living in the environment. The things with comp a computer is like, if you like an, an um, inanimate object. 
Um, whereas you're talking about um, an animate object living in an environment and in an environment is where you express yourself. And not only that, environments are quite specific. So there's a football environment, um, someone might be confident in emotional control on the football field, you put them 200 meters up a mountainside and they go to pieces. Context is everything, as I said. Yes, yeah, so I guess just on that the kind of question that jumps out at me is where, and this is again a, a conversation I've had with many people, of course, is how important is it that the athlete is then conscious about what's actually happening in terms of intuitive beast? Or is yeah. it okay just to be instinctive? Is there any benefits and any pros or cons to them actually having a more conscious element of what's going on, if that makes sense? Yeah, um, sometimes you can be conscious in your deliberation. So if you're um, in a supermarket, you're making a decision about what you're going to have for dinner tonight and you have consulted family members and you're, you, you've got time, you're remembering, you think, oh, that's right, what was I supposed to get? Okay, I was supposed to get some steak or I was supposed to get some vegetables or whatever. In sport, you often haven't got time to make those deliberate choices and decisions. Um, so you have the, um, the supermarket situation context can be captured by explicit performance, more explicit performance, explicit learning. If I gave you a list and said, um, or a list of numbers, uh, uh, this is how we used to be before um, smartphones came in, where you just tap in a number and that's it, it's stored. Um, you know, I would say to you, Naz, give me a call. Uh, uh, yes, give me a call later. Um, and here is my number. So, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you'd explicitly memorize it and then maybe even write it down. And then, you know, sometimes that piece of paper's not there, you'd go, oh, right, I need to find a public phone. Now, what was the number again? Da, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Um, that's explicit learning. It turns out that we don't use explicit learning in uh, many high performance, dynamic, competitive uh, context. We use much more implicit learning because implicit learning is stronger, less resistance to forgetting, less resistance to um, anxiety and being perturbed like that. And there's good scientific evidence that shows it. And actually, the good news about that is, you know, I talked before about how we use information and we, um, you know, I mean, actually, you mentioned a great idea about being sensitive, attuned to um, a defender being maybe 30 centimeters closer and alarm bells are ringing, that you've got to, that, that kind of invites certain actions rather than other actions. And people are good at perceiving information around them and making choices and decisions very fluidly, very quickly, um, you know, quite implicitly. So implicit learning is actually quite a dominant way of learning. If as coaches and teachers, educators, parents, um, if we allow learners to learn implicitly, if instead we jump in, start instructing, start telling, start getting people to memorize, rehearse, repeat, that takes them straight to the explicit channel. And we know that the explicit channel, explicitly learning things, memorizing things, rehearsing things, that's not as good as the implicit channel. So the opposite of the ex explicit channel in during implicit learning, where you're learning almost like absorbing information and um, learning things without even really deliberately focusing, as you said, consciously on it, you're absorbing this information. The implicit channel is where you put people 
in a context that matches their current capacities and then they kind of problem solve they adapt to that situation so in a one-on-one -on -one practice you might start the defender off further away but then you gradually bring them in you don't even have to tell the attacker about it some coaches do you know why bother let the let the defender get used to working that out uh, sorry let the attacker get used to perceiving that information you don't have to instruct them okay we're going to move two feet closer or whatever you can bring in all those changes and challenge the learners to perceive that information use it and make decisions accordingly yeah it's it's um so um keith obviously you talked there a lot about implicit and explicit learning i guess the, the question that kind of really really jumps out at me there is well, rather the the, the 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 thought that jumps out at me is more do we even need to tell the athletes what they should be paying attention to or, or should we be more inquisitive and curious around what they perceive to be impacting on their performance now obviously if we're going down the eye and obviously that doesn't mean we can't prompt and give them a bit more guidance or exposure to actually some of the unconscious things that might be impacting them that they might not even considered yet or, or actually really brought to life for themselves. Because um, if we use the example of you know, having that defender 30 centimetres closer as opposed to 30 centimetres away, they might not realise actually that's what's happening that's what's impacting them, but their performance. So I understand the point about the explicit learning and I guess memorising those things. Hmm. Maybe the more implicit part is bringing consciousness to the things that actually matter if that makes mm. sense. The things that are, they are actually being impacted on, and that's obviously down to individual perception as well, because mm. I might not necessarily be impacted by the pressure that the defender's being 30 centimetres closer, but actually someone else shouting at the back of, 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 the, of the pitch or, you know, my goalkeeper or my... What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply giving me some loud instructions while it's happening that might put me off as an example because i'm more attuned to that than tuned to this if that makes sense so yeah, i guess yeah. how much if at all any difference in level of importance is actually that consciousness do you think maybe based yeah. on your knowledge well i mean um, there's lots of different directions we could take that comment down 
Um, and I think that I would like to take it down at the moment, uh, take it down the direction of the role of intentions. So I'm, I've made the point uh, all along that I think coaches, whatever sport, um, take football, for example, context is everything. And you provide context in learning by shape. What, what, you, what you're actually doing is shaping the intentions of the learner. So the intentionality might be, um, you know, imagine that you are created a scenario. You're, you're, you're uh, created a one-on-one -on -one scenario. But, you know, in, um, in the game of football, on field, a one-on-one -on -one scenario is just not the same. It has different meaning. If you're one-on-one -on -one in your own penalty area, you're like, don't lose the ball. Don't even let the defender get a tackle in because, you know, the, 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 um, my opponent might just knock the ball and that might go to somebody and they may score. If you're one-on-one -on -one, um, in the middle of the field, you know you've got players behind you, you can take a bit of a risk and it may not be as big a priority to not lose the ball, like eh, to keep possession of the ball. If you're one-on-one -on -one in the penalty area, uh, the opponent's penalty area, then, you know, there's a really almost like what's inviting you is the opportunity to get a shot in. So the context that you paint as a coach, that shapes the intentions of the um, of the individual. So the coach doesn't even need to say to the, to the uh, player, don't lose the ball here. They know because they're only three yards from the goal. They can work it out sort of thing. They'd probably, and they probably learned through making those mistakes in, so that's why playing small-sided games are good because people can then learn from it and say, oh, yeah, I, I shouldn't do that near my own goal. I should really try and take a risk near their goal. And those things are basic. They can shape your intentions and you just don't need to even add instructions to it. You might, you know, if you want to mention it, that's all right. But, it, you know, you, you, people get fed up with it after a while where you're you stating the obvious, is, if you like, you know. So, yeah. No, and I think, I think again, it's a really good point. It's what really jumps out to me is that context. And, like, you know, one of the massive things I'm really kind of passionate about is actually how intentional you are with your practice design. Mm. And, you know, a lot of the coaches I've worked with over, over, over the recent years, and it's, it's crazy that, you, I mean, I can understand it for maybe a newly experienced or a new, a new, a new coach, but someone who considers themselves to be quite experienced, I, I, it kind of baffles me as to how you would maybe not provide the context. So as an example, yeah, we're just going to be back and forth passing 10 yards. Okay, fine. But what's the context? Mm. You need to give that context. So if it is a 10-yard pass, no problem. But where on the pitch is it taking place? Yeah. What is the angle that we're actually working towards? Is it, That's it. Right, I'm passing to Keith and Keith's back towards goal. So then he might, we not need to encourage him to receive in a particular way. Or is it actually me and Keith are side by side facing the goal or facing our own goal? And these are the different things. Yeah. The pressure come from. So as an example, one of the things I like to do if I was going to do something like that was, right, Keith, I'm going to play the ball to you, but I want you to receive it in a way as if you've got someone on your left hand shoulder. Yeah. Um, and then we might practice a few repetitions of someone on the right hand shoulder or, or someone who's just behind you with a hand on your back. Just try and visualize yes. it, feel it. Yeah. Really kind of, if you like, um, meditate on the thought of what it actually feels and looks like, if you like. Yes. Um, and then kind of just think, right, what are the things that are going to impact me here? How might I receive? Because actually, it's not as simple as just receiving the ball now, because actually, I've got someone on my left hand shoulder. So I might need to yeah. body shape, body position, and all that sort of stuff. So that's, that's something that's really key. And, but, there was something that we kind of, um, I wanted to kind of go back to, which is something that you touched on earlier. Um, 
now you talk you know we talked about the the science and things going against uh the idea of early specialization um, and we obviously talked about you know enriching yourself in a range of different experiences and it, it, whether that be through different sports whether that be just general activities i'm really curious yeah. now because obviously you mentioned as well that some organizations are picking up people as early as nursery to say yeah this person is going to be a dominant person in this in this field <clears throat> it doesn't happen like you said in any other field it seems to happen in sport and more specifically especially in football it happens a lot so i guess mm. The, the two kind of questions that come out for me from that side is there, is there any science or any recommendations around maybe some of the differences that might go with um in those enrichment um experiences for female and male athletes or players or just young people at an early st- early stage and maybe at what point should you maybe consider actually we now need to develop a more specific skill set for this type of activity or is it just actually just and, and I, I don't probably know the answer to this question is down to the individual needs obviously and, and where they're at in their journey but yeah. um, is there any maybe more maybe more kind of guidance or recommendations to when we might want to start specializing in a particular area or actually you know we know that this particular sport or this activity they're going into they're going to need to have xyz capabilities so let's throw them into here, here, and here, and here, so we can start to round those things up to make them a bit more of a complete athlete. Because what you do tend to find as well is a lot of, a lot of, uh, I don't know, not, not so much sure about the female game in particular, the female, female athletes in particular, but you do hear about a lot of males that who actually they were quite effective in multiple different sports before becoming specialist in or, or going down a career path in one. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, it, it that equally applies for. Um, all sexes really, males, females, etc. Um, it, it's really about enriching athleticism so that, um, uh, I, I guess the, the reason why I like the so-called athletic skills model, the athletic skills model, now that's a model that's come from high performance sport. That's come from professional football, uh, from Ajax Football Club. Um, they produced um, one of the you know, best academies in the world. Uh, and I'm actually not a big fan of academies and, you know, we, we may or may not get to discuss why, but um, uh, in, in this podcast, but other podcasts, but um, in my writings, you know, I've, I've um, documented theories and evidence data why um, academies may not be the best way of organising development of, of young players in a sports organisation. But, it, you know, some of them, some academies have got it right. And Ajax Football Club, they produced um, particularly uh, Rene Vermout. The Rene Vermout is the... Uh, skill acquisition coach, um, strength and conditioning coach. He developed that academy. I actually was part of that. He now works for the Dutch national football team as their skill acquisition and strength and conditioning coach. So what they do there is they integrate movement skill, performance and skill acquisition and strength and conditioning. They don't separate it as much. In some places they go, oh no, you know, you're just doing strength and conditioning here. So that could be repetition runs and uh, all sorts of these gym-based movements, um, and then in, a, in, in you know the, another part of their training is they do the skills work as well as if they're two distinct things. The athletic skills model integrates the two as much as possible. So, okay, going going with the question. Yeah. I was just going to say really what you're saying, and what I'm hearing, if you could just clarify, is that 
they're looking at, right, what are the specific movements that are required from a specific activity and can we incorporate that into the program to essentially make the program more efficient and functional rather than yes. isolating the, the stuff, yeah? That's it, that's right, yeah. So functional is a key term there. Functional means how you perform in that specific environment. And when you're functional, it means that you're more effective, you're more efficient, i.e., you know, you're efficient in energy use, but you're also achieving your intentions. Yeah. So you're completing, you know, successful dribbles, tackles, shots at goal, and all that sort of thing. So making training and skill development more functional is important. And another way of saying that is add context yeah. to it. And, and context is relevant for functionality of an athlete. Yeah, 100%. And it, it kind of just, you know, just brings me back to some of my experience of working in the fitness industry as well in that typically, I mean, I'm someone who likes to do a lot of functional type training, but I'm also mm. consciously aware that on the eye, the results, if you like, might not be as progressive because obviously you're not focusing this on aesthetics. You're actually focusing on the functionality, which is actually the performance yes. and the skill performance, if you like, in, in, in what you're what you referred to earlier, but actually the, it's the action rather than the outcome, if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, no, yeah, it does. It does. I mean, uh, aesthetics and functionality in many ways can be two different things. Yeah. You have some people who look really athletic and strong and fit, and yet they're quite clumsy in their movements. Their agility is not so good. Uh, they look the piece. And then you've got others that slouch around, uh, don't look anywhere near as uh, aesthetically yeah body sculpted as other individuals and yet they're very effective in their movement they've got great acceleration they can twist turn change direction very powerful um and you know and, and the thing i give is a very simple example in football and in team sports it's not strength that is important it's the strength to body weight ratio that's important so you might have someone who kind of might be small, wiry, medium built or something, but is actually very, very powerful. And I'll give you one example. If you look at, uh, I think this is an example I often refer to in football, Dimitar Berbatov, when he played for Tottenham and Manchester United, very slim, slender, I think he smoked a lot as well, uh, incredibly strong, he could really shield the ball. And, and what I remember about Berbatov was, um, he, could, he could also differentiate his skill and strength along dimensions of his body so uh, he would turn for example he'd turn his hips and receive the ball on his right side for example and that would produce the most silky soft touches the left hand side of his body would be really strong and be a defender who couldn't get around him couldn't get past him couldn't perturb him knock him off balance um, and he was incredible at that and that is really skill integrated with physical aspect of of performance um, and and for me to go back to that athletic skills model is models like that that encourage this integration of movement skill and um, strength and conditioning aspects etc and they do that by providing athletes with a kind of a rich base of movement skills functional movement skills so that when they get to that moment of specialization they've got this whole repertoire of movements that they can draw upon um, and they're not kind of um uh, they're not in deficit somewhere you know so sometimes when this is what the problem with academies and early specialization is that sometimes when people get to those contexts and they're ready to specialize 
there, there there's deficits there there's inefficiencies in their movement they you know they have they have to do more remedial work there um because they especially with the modern generation uh, you know as we know now uh children nowadays don't play out as much they don't interact with the environment as much they're not exposed to a range of um sports etc um and so that can lead to some problems that we that we're seeing yeah 100 like and I, you know you've got my mind really kind of just your cogs just spinning and, I, and the two kind of really key questions that jump out at me and hopefully this might marry align really well maybe people are listening to this is that a right we understand that obviously the early specialization may create some deficits uh, we also understand that obviously you know environmentally and culturally we've changed as a generation so we're not as you say we're not playing out in the streets as much we're not doing all these things that much but even if it was simple as climbing trees fences and mm. all that sort of mm. stuff you know i guess implicitly will be helping us develop these skills um so i guess the first question i've got there is that right is there any particular questions or observations that you'd encourage coaches or practitioners to be making regardless of what level they're working at whether that be in the academy system elite, elite pathways or whatever you want to call them or grassroots football or recreational environments that you want to maybe get that you would encourage practitioners and coaches to maybe pay more attention to so for instance okay you know you talked there about that Berbatov as, as an example you know he's essentially got a solid st stable base on his left hand side while he's kind of you know a bit more free-flowing and I don't want to call it flimsy but he's just a bit more um, yeah. flexible adaptable nimble yeah, yeah. so on, on the other side but obviously that that's that's quite a high level skill absolutely um, yeah. I think you can also go underestimated and underappreciated in terms of how exclude you know ex ex extremely skillful that movement and that that behavior is if you like so I guess the first piece is are we now encouraging coaches to maybe say right okay how and how exactly are these movements being performed and then it kind of brings back to some way of there's also uh, if you like a model to follow a guy mm. a, a particular technique to kind of encourage and, and, and follow or should we be now saying to write the, the, the coaches to maybe ask different types of questions of the athletes that they're actually working with um so that's the that's the kind of the first piece the second thing i wanted to kind of really touch on obviously is that we mentioned earlier about the in some environments like you know like uh, the IF situation that you talked about there where they be able to maybe isolate uh, performance skills and you know actual functional movements and whatnot and obviously they're able to do that not only because they might have the time available to them and the resources available to them to actually say oh you know we've got these players four or five times a week or three or four times a week so we can actually block out their program in a way where we can actually facilitate all that. But obviously, a lot of the coaches who are probably listening to this are probably going to be working in settings where they don't maybe have that much time with their players. Um, or if they do have time with the players, they may be suffering from lack of resources. So yeah. what are some of the considerations that you think that coaches could be making to actually start to incorporate some of this more functional type activity in their basic work, if you like. Yeah, yeah, good. So, okay, so you, you, you um, there's two parts to that, if you remember. And the first part is variability the answer to it so add variability to your practice and it's variability has got to be in context not just random variability okay we'll do this now we'll do that now that, that that's not really thoughtful it's got to be framed yeah. by the context that you're working on and that is team games maybe I, can, maybe I can throw an example and you can maybe help me unpack it just to kind of uh, yeah. help relate to listen so as an example what i'm 
here and there is that yeah we've got a we've got an activity which let's just say it's, it's a finishing type practice you're going to receive yeah. the ball and then you're going to turn it and then you're going to look to finish it in and around the edge of the box just to give it a bit more yeah. context uh, we've got a player initially playing right behind you so we're now looking at context in terms of where that defender or your position might be yeah. but actually now the variability might come from um your whole idea really repetition without repetition in some ways that's it yeah. Now, rather than just giving you 10 solid services services that are along yeah. the floor I might yeah. say like okay we're going to work through a range of different services here as an example so I might play one on the floor one that bounces <coughs> in one that kind of comes up or towards your hips or your chest um and another one which kind of starts from above the head and like kind of lowers itself down towards you so yeah. these are the different services that you're looking to receive we might practice yeah. a few at a time so it might be a set of set of these set of these set of these but then start moving to actually now the next set might be a bit more random yeah now yeah. is that is that along the right track and what you're saying just to kind of help yeah you? yeah it is yeah i mean it depends on the needs of the individual yeah you can again it's like dialing it up and down so again uh, good coaching i think is about thinking on continuums you can go more varied or you can go less varied depending yeah. on the needs of the individual if you find that you're adding too much variability for the actual current skill set of a particular player you might be overwhelming them demotivating them they might be losing confidence just dial it back down again and only they only might need just two options you know um so you you know when you when you're thinking about adding some uh pressure to the practice it could be passive uh, pressure, static pressure, the presence of somebody standing there, they've got to dribble around, or it could be active pressure. It depends mm. on their needs. And clearly you've got to move towards the game where you have yeah. active pressure, etc. So, you know, that's that's the skill of the coach. Yeah, as you pointed out before, just because you change something or add something that you call a constraint, that doesn't mean it is a constraint because a constraint is very individualized and based on the needs of the person. Um, just adding a constraint in um, may not be a constraint to that person, but it might be a constraint to another person. So this is why I like the ecological approach, because it looks at the individual and the environment, not each separately. You know, it, it, uh, it's not an environmentalist approach, which means that, OK, I'm just going to change the constraint. You adapt to it. That, it doesn't work that way. It's got to be scaled to the needs of the individual. So sure. always think person-environment relationship, person-environment relationship. Sure, so just kind of one more point, just to kind of delve, delve deeper on that one before we kind of move on to the second part of the initial question was, yeah, within that element of variability, how important or how beneficial is it if we, or just in terms of how we do it, so is it, is it best, let's just say, for example, we've, we've identified the needs, they're going to work with two different variations of, of what we're going to do here. One might be on the floor, one might be, bouncing in so one might be completely alone yeah, yeah. for an example now based on those two variabilities how important or effective is it that actually we're going to do maybe five of these and then five of these or is it best for us to say actually we're just going to go random we're going to do a set of six as an example but we're yeah. just going to go random and we're going to really just respond to what you see yeah is there is there well, is it i know you're probably going to say based on the individual needs again yeah but, uh, you, you certainly need to add some uh, randomness into the practice design and it's better than what you call blocked you talked about blocked practice um, and people you know you, you, you talked about um, repetition without repetition that that comes from the Russian 
physiologist Nikolai Bernstein, who did his work in, 19, uh, in the 1930s. Those ideas are so pertinent now, way ahead of the time. And what he meant was, don't just get people repeating things, repeating a technique, a movement pattern. Um, I like rehearsing it, like, it, like choreographing, like a dance, like you're on Strictly Come Dancing or something like that. It's not like that. What they should be repeating, they obviously should be repeating something, is repeating the problem solving, repeating the producing the solution to a particular problem. So that means as a coach, you just slightly vary it. So to go back to the second part of the question, um, what that means for, you know, well, like a shooting practice, you could start with unopposed, uh, depending on the level of course, you could start with unopposed practice and bring in a static defender then a more active defender and the active defender doesn't have to move everywhere they can be allowed to just step one meter this way one meter that way and then eventually become more active to simulate what the game's like but you know when uh, people um they get a shot in so imagine a, like a two-touch situation they control the ball bang shoot very quickly before the defender can uh just close the space down and uh, that sort of thing um you know when they receive the ball in that situation, they receive it from a kicked pass. You'll see a lot of coaches just roll the ball in, throw the ball in. That's not, you know, if you did that in a game, that'd be handball, free kick to the opposition. Yeah. You know? So kicking the ball in and putting spin on it, bounce, um, low, that sort of thing, high, you know, all that different velocities, yeah. all, all that is important because that's what you, that's the information that you experience in the game. 100% and I'm so glad that you said it because it's again another conversation I've been having with a lot of people recently around the idea of goalkeeping coaching as an example. Mm. Typically what you see with a lot of goalkeeping coaches is you, know, you can get the typical volleys, half volleys and all different types of services. The question I just write and no one's ever seemed to be able to give me an answer is when would you see Harry Kane catch the ball in his hand and drop it and then kick it to you? Exactly, exactly. So why yeah. in that? And if that means that your, your your service in itself is not consistent because maybe the lack of technique or lack of consistency in technique, then yeah. that's not necessarily a bad thing because what we what we're really trying to get the players to understand is actually it's not always going to be the same, but actually there might be some key indicators that or variables that they're observing, using as key uh, triggers or cues of information, if you like, to respond to. So for instance, like you said, it's a kicked pass actually. There's yes. going to be timing involved in that. There's going to be distance and angles involved in that. So yeah. at what yeah. point, when the person's leg comes back, actually how far yeah. is the leg been brought back and how far is it coming forward? And that yeah. might dictate the speed and the time they've got to react. Absolutely. Absolutely right, yeah. And so that, you know, so you can bring in a lot of pressure that way. So supposing, um, um, it goes back to the point you made before about coaches, um, the second part of the question about, you know, what can coaches do to encourage uh, people to um, be uh, to diversify their skill set to enrich themselves as athletes. Uh, let's be let's let's be humble. Coaches, teachers, uh, you know. I mean, I, I'm an educator myself. In terms of you, I don't have to be present. You're still learning. You know, if I say, yeah, take a look at this. Watch this video clip. Read this paper. Learning can happen. So if you want, if you're talking about enriching and you say, oh, well, you know, the coach, I've, uh, I've only got the, um, that group of footballers for, for one night a week, two hours. There's six other nights of the week that they could be engaged in other sports and activities. Um, take a look at cultures like skateboarding, snowboarding, 
um, BMX biking and stuff like that. You start going in there and trying to structure their sessions and coach them, they would literally walk away. You know, that's part of the culture there. Let's not forget that people in the past, they, they were able to make up games and play and practice by themselves. And, you know, you, you brought up the example of um, goalkeeping practice in football. There are certain instances where we don't have all the players available to really simulate the game situation. Do we then give up and say, oh, well, forget it. You know, I'll tell you now, Fabio Notte, who's a colleague of mine, he's got a PhD in motor learning. Um, Fabian, he's the goalkeeping coach at Borussia Mönchengladbach. Um, and I've seen video clips, you might have seen them on YouTube, where he does goalkeeping coach, where he, he, he literally takes the Bernstein's repetition without repetition and creates scenarios. And there's only about three, four people there, but he uses um, passive defenders and uh, mannequins and spaces. He changes um, the, the, the velocity of uh, balls coming in and, and that sort of thing. He's adding variability all the time. He's um, And goalkeepers always have context. So uh, when they've made a save, they grab the ball, then they then have to distribute it like they would in a game. They don't suddenly stop and go, have a rest, roll the ball away. You wouldn't do that in the game. So why would you practice it? Um, and so, yeah, there are ways of um, practicing when you don't have lots of people around. And just because you've only got a group for two hours, that doesn't mean that learning only occurs when you, the coaches, is present. I think, I think it's a great point. I think really it comes back to the piece you talked about earlier. Let's start coaching around intention. Hmm. What's the intention? Knowing that, okay, as an example, if I'm going to do a practice, where it might be 1v1 or this is an attack versus defence type of practice, as an example, don't just have it being a situation where the defenders are going to win it and that's the end of the game or the end of the round or whatever the repetition yes. Not actually, what is their intention beyond it? We want to try and That's right. those behaviors. If we know that in a game they're going to win the ball and then they're going to be expected to attack, and it That's might not it. be a go and score, it might not yeah. be, yeah. it actually, it might be win the ball and find the person. That's part. it. That's it. Yeah. Start, I mean, start the uh, counter attack up or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why one of the biggest issues I have is with like a, a typical rondo, as an example. Yes. With a typical rondo, what you get is obviously a situation where without any direction, there's no context. And yes. without context, the defenders are just going to be moving left to right. You just, typically, what you might do is get the, get the people on the outside to try and find a gap between the defenders. But actually, the reality yeah. is, if you now say to the defenders, actually, guys, the ball's going to start with yes. Ball's trying to get into Keith. Stop it from happening. Yeah, All that's it. changes completely. Yeah. Because now yeah, that's we're it. not just looking to move the ball around, we're looking to shift the defenders out of shape so that we can penetrate, as an example. That's right. You're providing more context. That's absolutely yeah. right. And I, and I think that's the thing. Look, don't get me wrong. Um, some of these practices have been around for a long time and they can contribute a little bit, but, the, but what they contribute is superficial. Um, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before about um, when I started off, I didn't realize that actually knowledge is going to change, become deeper much more elaborate, much more sophisticated. And we've got, to, we've got to keep up with it. Don't have a view of knowledge and skills and even like um, context, performance context like football, that doesn't, that's not standing still. You know, I mean, rules are changing all the time. Probably rugby union is the game where rule changes are constantly changing uh, rapidly. But in football, you know, next, next season in the Premier League, they're gonna be five substitutes available. 
um, you know, um, and that, you know, so things are always changing and expect that. Um, and and, that, and that's, that's why I like the term dynamic. Um, football is a dynamic performance environment. It doesn't mean it's static, it's in a box, that's it forever. And that's what you've got to do. Equipment's changing, rules are changing, formats are changing, and our knowledge is changing as well. So that will shape performance. Tactical formations and um, the ways of looking at things playing, they change as well. So, you know, keep that in mind all the time as a coach. Yeah. And what you're, what you're doing is contributing on a journey. You're just contributing a little bit on a journey as football progresses through the ages. That's all you're doing. It's not, it's not static. And I think that's a, it's a really great point to kind of, you know, look to wrap up on. And I just want to kind of add to that and say that, you know, we quite, quite often we have debates and discussions around what's the future game going to look like? What's the future player going to look like? And it might not be specific to football, it might be whatever sport. And the one thing I've, the one thing I've, um, I've often said in response to that is that I said, it doesn't even matter. Who cares what the game is going to look like? The future player, the coaches, the, 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 the strategies and systems in place. The reality is we don't know what it's going to look like. Yes, that's right. Well, yeah, that, then that's a key point. So why would you select a four-year-old? You know, a four-year-old, you say, oh, you're going to be, you don't know what the game's going to look like. And, Spot well, on. No, no, 100%. And I think it's a really great point. And I think but the one thing we do know and that we can set our kind of, we, you know, we can place bets on is that it's still going to remain an invasion game. Yes. yes. It's still yeah. going to be reliant on, if you like, the principles of play. Yes. So how about yes. we start developing practices, we start bring more context, which help athletes, whether they be young, middle-aged, or whatever age they may be, or wherever stage of the game they're playing at, how about we help support and educate them better yeah. in their understanding of how to effectively perform within an invasion game, rather than looking at the techniques and the skills necessarily required, but actually mm. the intentions and the behaviors required to support a good performance. Yeah. And just to kind of cap that off, I think more needs to be done for coaches to actually develop a better understanding of what that looks like rather than yeah. focusing on the, the minute details where actually if you don't have the game understanding in terms of principles and how the game operates, yes. all those things you're working on become redundant. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And that provides you the context. That's what makes football different from futsal, for example, or five-a-side football or rugby union, you know. Uh, so you've got players, for example, take uh, the sport of rugby union. You've got the seven-a-side game, the rugby sevens, and then you've got the 15-a-side game. And players try to transfer between the two, but they don't often do it. There's certain things that will uh, support the transfer, and, and that's normally speed from the seven-a-side game. If you're really fast in there, um, that can transfer to the 15-a-side. But of course, you've got more players around, so the you know avenue for you to... Um, uh, operate your speed can be restricted by teams shutting down space and stuff like that you know so i think you're absolutely spot on i think for me what that um, raises is a key point that i'd like to make before we wrap up uh, yes um and that is that um when you're working as a development coach with young players etc probably the thing that you're looking for most is good learners people who want to learn take on board um and want to and, and we'll take responsibility we'll learn and adapt and um we'll adapt to different contexts um and if they're in unfamiliar settings or uh, faced with uncertainty they don't get phased they don't freak out 
they kind of work out they're good at working out solutions and stuff and that goes for coaches as well coaches adapting to situations they come across um like uh, uh, players that have got some certain unique characteristics and skills etc um or s- that some that might feel look a bit odd don't you know don't discard them and say oh i've got this template this model in my mind of what a striker should be or a midfield player should be you know um just focus on their strengths their you know and and uh, what they can offer help them to alleviate any weaknesses etc but you know you learning as a coach it's a journey and with the athletes a journey working together that would be a great thing to do because we don't we can't say that you know um you go back to the four-year-old there are some examples of young people who make it through from an early specialization but it's completely overrated that's the main point you could never say that it never works tiger woods is a, is a in golf is a product of early specialization but how many other people failed because of it or got worn down because of it or gave up you know had mental health physical problems because of too much um focus like that you know so it's really for me focusing um on learning learning as we're going and, and that's why um i like some of the comments and questions that you you raised in the podcast uh, podcast they they show someone who's interested in learning and understanding more uh, i really appreciate that keith and i think you know one of the key things that like you said there is it is about learning so i guess on that um you know i'm sure we could sit here for hours and probably even days about all the different considerations variable aspects of, of of development not just of players and athletes but just people in general um but if people did want to learn more about the work that you do is there somewhere they can get access to that and find out more about the work that you do yeah um i can send you um, a link from ian renshaw um a good colleague of mine uh and i we've set up um, um a, a website an online platform called the constraints collective and it's really about um we, we know we write blogs on it and we post links to conferences, job opportunities, PhD opportunities, further study opportunities, if you like, um, and all material that's related to um, understanding more and more about um, how to implement task constraints, to use them, to adapt them, to manipulate them, and also the constraints on each individual and the environmental constraints. Um, and yeah, there's lots of um, information to uh, read about that and from there you can get links to pay academic papers and applied practitioner papers as well so i can send you that link uh, yes or you may have it already yeah. uh, and you can share that with um, some of the listeners amazing well look keith thank you again for your time today it's been a fascinating conversation and uh, thank you <laughs> great no and, and thanks to you i mean so the, the comments and questions were really uh, uh insightful and you know encourage the discussion and exchange of ideas you know um so yeah thanks uh, thanks for your um interactions well there you have it guys another episode of the coaches network podcast where our aim is to bring the world of athlete talent and personal development together to just one platform and you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of you can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.